This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the Nature Conservancy's recently launched Natural Climate Solutions Initiative. With me to discuss the program is Ms. Jennifer Tabola, TNC's Acting Global Managing Director of Land. I should note this is my sixth climate change-related podcast since last fall. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. Ms. Tabola's bio, of course, is posted on the podcast website. On background, this past Monday, the UN Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, IPBES, released an 1,800-page report appraising the current state of our planet's biodiversity, the first major report um, since 2005. Among other conclusions, the report found one million plant and animal species are on the verge of extinction more than any other time in human history due to the loss of half of all natural worldwide ecosystems. For example, about 25% of the world's ice-free land is used today for cattle grazing. The most pronounced loss is of wetlands. 83% have been drained over the past few centuries. And just over the past 18 years, 7% of intact forests, a landmass larger than France, has been lost. With a tripling of the world's population since 1950, we are currently extracting an estimated 60 billion tons of biomass from nature annually, double the 1980 amount. A major driver of this collapse is human-caused or anthropogenic climate change. For example, warming oceans are causing the demise of commercial and indigenous fisheries. Simply stated, we're exploiting nature far faster than nature can replenish itself. Politically, the UN report contributed to Britain's parliament declaring, though symbolic, a climate change emergency last week. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the de facto leader of the Democratic Party, the only major U.S. political party recognizing climate change, did not bother to issue a press release in response to the report. With me again to discuss the Nature Conservancy's recently launched Natural Climate Solutions is Jennifer Tabola. So, Jennifer, with that as background, uh, obviously, um, to begin the question, how did uh, the Natural Climate Solutions Initiative or program come about? Or perhaps uh, you can provide an overview of the findings. Uh, there was an October uh, report uh, last year titled exactly this, Natural Climate Solutions. And, oh, excuse me, October 2017, my apologies, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, um, again with the same exact title, Natural Climate Solutions. Yes, so I think what we have done at the Conservancy is to try to pull together the foundational research that forms the, the basis for making the case that nature can be and must actually be one of our biggest allies in addressing escalating um, and rise, the rise of carbon emissions. And we know that in, just in 2018 that emissions have gone up. 
And we know that as the solution set, we have a lot of progress and a lot of conversation going on around energy efficiency and renewable energy, and those are critical. But there is approximately, and through our research, we have worked to add credibility and validity to this. There's about a third of, if you imagine a pie chart and you have renewable energy and you have energy efficiency in there as solutions for carbon emissions, uh, reducing those. The third piece that is really what we call sort of the sleeping giant is how we can tap land preservation conservation um, to store carbon, which is, you know, one incredibly important piece that we really don't talk about enough, and reduce carbon emissions. And we do that, you know, through protecting and reforesting the world's forest, protecting grasslands, wetlands, all of these have the ability to pull down carbon and hold it um, in order to, to get us to that 1.5 degrees. That is critical. And until we have the science to really validate what the capacity is within our natural systems, we were unable to make that claim and, now, and be able to work you know, with countries that are setting their commitments um, for the Paris Agreement. And so now that science is being stepped down country by country, and that's part of the work that the Nature Conservancy is doing as we speak um, to help understand where the biggest return on investment is regarding forest, grasslands, wetlands, preservation, and protection um, so that we can actually try to hit those marks and avoid the worst of of climate impacts. Great. Thank you. I'll just note... um I guess it was just last week, uh, atmospheric concentrations of CO2 passed 415 uh, parts per million. Um, and you're right, uh, 18 carbon emissions were up. Uh, I think the percent was 3%. Since I mentioned the National Academy uh, October 2017 document, I'll just read one sentence from it per the point you just made. The most mature carbon dioxide removal method is improved land stewardship Yet confusion persists about the specific set of actions that should be taken to both increase sinks, carbon sinks, and improve land stewardship and reduce emissions from land use activity. So let's get more granular here as we progress. There was uh, a statement uh, quoted uh, um, by the head of the UN Environmental Program. Uh, She stated, nature is our best bet to tackle climate change and secure the future. You have already uh, intimated that. How is this explained or how... Or why is it that the fastest accumulation of carbon occurs in vegetated coastal habitats such as mangroves, salt marshes, or sea grass beds, and then also forests uh, and terrestrial soils combine uh, or store more than 2.5 times as much carbon as the atmosphere? Uh, so these are natural, would you not call them negative emission technologies? That's right. Um, One of the things that we have begun to talk about is really we have these, these, you know, we talk about technology and there's a whole field of techno-optimism and certainly um, there is a lot of of investment right now in innovation looking for ways to pull down, you know, carbon from the atmosphere. And that's worthy and it's important and it will be a part of the solutions. But, you know, scaling that is going to be a major impediment, um, both the cost you know, and getting the technology to roll out. So what we know is that nature is already online and available to us. So if we look at, for example, um, the connection between mangroves 
and we look at the ability for you know those that ecosystem natural system to sequester carbon um, we are fighting you know the battle of for example food production um, shrimp farming and you know the decimation of those natural carbon sequestration if we want to call it natural technology um, we are fighting that you know right now in real time and so we have pitted against each other you know, food production, particularly protein, and being able to generate that at the same time that we're trying to preserve what is one of the most efficient and effective um, carbon sequestration, if we want to call that again, you know, natural technologies that we have available to us. I, I appreciate your phrase, uh, nature is already online. So that's, that's a useful uh, phrase to use and to understand this. So, um, to cite some of the numbers here, um, you cite in your materials uh, relative current resource allocation that uh, we need to invest more, as you again just suggested, in nature's ability to address climate change. Um, what what are the percent of dollars invested in exploiting or let's say um, assisting nature? relative to other percents of money for other mitigation efforts? That's a really good question. I, I'm sorry, I don't have the um, specific amounts, but I can tell you uh, one of our major endeavors to drive um, greater investment and to increase the dollars that are spent because we know that investing in nature um, as a carbon sequestration alternative and a part of that mix in the solution set um, gives us additional co-benefits that these other approaches don't deliver, um, particularly around health, um, food with healthy soils, uh, water quality, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> what I can say is that we are actively you know, working as well at the Nature Conservancy with carbon finance and trying to make sure that there are opportunities to generate revenue um, with countries in particular that are trying to uphold commitments um, to the Paris Agreement, but also are fighting uh, the forces of developing. So, for example, deforestation related to food production, um, both grazing and agriculture, is a major threat, right? So how do we, you know, how do we enable countries to preserve and protect forests and even reforest when that is up against the competing need, you know, to feed people? Um, one of the ways mm -hmm. we can do that is to, you know, work, and we're working actively on this um, with, you know, just carbon finance mechanisms. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a very dynamic arena. And so far, we're, you know, we still don't have a great, as we know, a great price on carbon um, so that there is confidence and, you know, a sense of security to be able to, <clears throat> to you know, invest in that, and so we're working as you know as quickly as we can to try to to develop the economic systems to value the carbon sequestration benefits, and to some degree monetize that. And you know, I think that's back to your one of your earlier questions: um, how do we make you know how do we actually do those estimates and that science that you mentioned at the very beginning um, on natural, <clears throat> natural climate solutions in PNAS was you know, fundamental, and that is being utilized as part of setting up the market system so that we can incentivize the right things. Great. Thank you. Uh, so you did note at the, at the top or earlier that about a third, or I've seen as upwards of 37 percent 
uh, uh, greenhouse gas reductions uh, needed by 2030 can be provided by uh, restoration of natural habitats, phrased another way. I have seen stats relative to my question, something as low as 2.5% of monies currently uh, for mitigation funding are allocated to these, uh, uh, again, natural uh, climate solutions. Let's get into some of the specifics. I do know, and this is intuitive, that in, quote-unquote, re-greening the planet, uh, yeah. A lot of this can be accomplished, and this was discussed in the 17 proceedings paper. A lot of this can be accomplished by reducing, and you just suggested, a deforestation or net zero deforestation, reforestation, or better managed forests. So can you say a bit more about that? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think one of the important things for us to spotlight here is really there's forest protection, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other side of that court is, uh, coin is reforestation. So we know that every year millions of hectares of native forests are cleared, right, for other land uses mm -hmm. and include urban development for croplands, grazing, tree plantations. And, of course, in the process of that happening, most of the carbon that's stored in these trees is lost to the atmosphere. Um you know, one of the things we have to take a look at, and it's tricky, is looking at, you know, at diet and looking at what, you know, what is really driving that deforestation. Most of it is commercial agriculture. Um, but that said, there are lots of opportunities that we are not yet mobilizing to improve production on existing agricultural land. So intensifying production so that we can avoid additional deforestation. Um, and then, you know, another piece of this is also looking at ways to reforest. So that's sort of the other side of the coin. And we are actively looking at how, you know, one of the things you don't want to do um, in the effort to promote, you know, wood products. And, and one of the things that we're taking a deep dive on, in fact, in, in New York, we have a big meeting with a number of partners next in a couple of weeks. Um, is to look at this new cross-laminated timber, for example, for construction. We know that, you know, the world is urbanizing. We are going to have tremendous um, infrastructure building needs within the next 20 years. And so how are we going to do that? Um, cement um, has a huge uh, carbon emissions quotient. And so we are looking at, <clears throat> at forest as an option and looking at timber. And, of course, we don't want to incentivize more deforestation. So we have to look at how do we reforest because we get carbon benefits from that. Um, and how do we do, how do we stimulate demand for the right things? And again, this gets us back into economics. Um, but we know, you know, the millions of hectares of lands that have been deforested, um, again, most of that is not, you know, providing a lot of food production. A lot of that is very short-lived in terms of productivity. So reforesting those lands that are not terribly productive for food production um, would help to sequester billions of tons of carbon dioxide without disrupting food production. So we can do that um, by doing it in the right places. Um, I would just say, secondly, in some cases, reforestation can be inexpensive, right? Um, we can actually allow forests in the right places, again, and this is where the science comes in, um, to regenerate naturally, right? So in, in some cases, reforestation can require active planting of trees and then care as they grow. And in some cases, it's really about letting nature um, take back over and regenerate naturally. But so we have two prongs there, active reforestation incentivized by markets 
and stimulating the right demand with safeguards in place. And then the other side of that coin is um, natural regeneration and, you know, helping um, where, where it needs a boost. You know, we, we know how to do that. But there's a lot that can happen if we just let nature take its course. Sure. Thank you. So, again, as you uh, note, the trick here of the balance is uh, doing this without reducing or disrupting uh, food production. I did see in your materials uh, th- the example of Brazil, uh, that they reduced their tree cover loss between 04 and 14, which led to a reduction in carbon emissions from, and here are the numbers, 29 million metric tons to 152, so almost a 50% reduction in carbon emissions by metric ton. So um, good example there. I also mentioned... Um, we're hoping that doesn't go backward, given exactly that right. yes. in the political scenes. We've got that happening in a number of places, and it's a genuine... Concern, yes. threat. Um, hard-won progress and, and easy to go backward, but um, I think we're doing all we can to demonstrate, again, you know, the financial benefits. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I will note, it was interesting, uh, a month or so ago, a, a volume was published uh, uh, discussing the so-called mini ice age of the 1600s, and the, the reason for that was with uh, Europeans coming to the New World and the spread of disease caused a good deal of land in the New World that had been um, cultivated to return to a tree growth, and that absorbed yeah. more carbon out of the atmosphere, and that lowered uh, the planet's um, uh, temperature. So interesting. There are a number of many other, we don't have time for all these, I'll just mention a few and, and ask you to select which ones you think are, uh, are most notable. So beyond uh, forest uh, management. Again, we discussed um, coastal revegetation, mangrove, the so-called mangrove defense, or vegetating coastal habitats, which are efficient ways of carbon sequestration. Uh, uh, peatlands, which also store massive amounts of carbon. Uh, you have discussions about reductions in fertilizer use because overuse uh, releases atmospheric nitrogen or and nitrous oxide, a much more potent greenhouse mm-hmm. gas, and then agricultural right. conservation, improved rice cultivation, agroforestry. I mean, it is impressive, the opportunity here and the number of areas in which progress can be made. So I'll just yeah. mention those. Where, feel free, where, where would you like to feel free to make comment on where you think are, are important? Also, uh, just to note, uh, boosting populations of certain mega herbivores, um, because they spread and germinate uh, tree seeds. I mean, this really gets uh, very interesting, and the opportunities are extensive. Yeah. Well, thank you for the menu of options, and you're <laughs> right. Um, it, it is really a 360, but that is sort of the beautiful thing, right, that mm-hmm. these systems are all interrelated, and actually, you know, they are working too. We don't we, we take it for granted, but they are the backdrop of our health, right? We cannot have health without a healthy planet, and I know that that is your primary audience here, and mm-hmm. they know this as well, but we really have the science that is emerging that reinforces and helps us understand how we prioritize within that array of options. The truth is all of them are necessary at once. Of course, um, you know, the forest piece is the biggest potential, you know, contributor. It's where we're, you know, placing a lot of energy. But I do want to say, again, for a health audience, you know, we have it at um, the Nature Conservancy, one of the leading soil scientists. And 
you know, talking about what matters to people every day um, and what plays a huge role in our health with respect to nutrition, right, and mm-hmm. food. And so one of the things that people don't typically, aren't, aren't as aware of if they're not immersed in natural climate solutions is that, you know, we can do a lot within agriculture, even within big ag, um, to improve the health of soil. And that so- healthy soil actually is far more efficient in sequestering carbon. So we know that if we, there are practices, and we, there's sort of a, a field um, called broadly conservation agriculture, where we can increase the amount of carbon that is stored in the soil. But guess what? When we do that, it also improves not only soil quality, but also its fertility. And, you know, some of the newest science is showing us that the nutritional value of the food um, that comes out of, you know, this type of, of uh, production is far more nutritious. And I think that is one of the most interesting co-benefits um, that is coming up through the science. But, you know, what does that really look like? So when bare soil is exposed between crops, between harvests, mm-hmm. we know that that carbon is lost to the atmosphere. We, it's a fairly simple endeavor to plant cover crops on croplands. Yes. Um, but how do you incentivize farmers to do that when what they're incentivized to do is to, you know, produce on a, on a, with an, an unrelenting cycle, right, without letting the rest happen in between? And one of the ways that you then, you know, make up for that ability to regenerate soil is to, you know, put in um, fertilizers and use more pesticides. Now, one of the things that a lot of folks don't know is that producing those very fertilizers and pesticides itself is carbon intensive in many cases, but it also strips the land and it doesn't allow for, you know, this carbon sequestration that the use of cover crops would allow for. So, you know, one of the biggest tricks is how do we incentivize that? And it looks very different if you're talking about places like the United States um, and other countries with mega, you know, agricultural systems, as opposed to small shareholder farmers where, truly the tonnage of carbon sequestered per farm is small, but you've got, you know, millions of farmers. How do you incentivize them to change their practices when they live, you know, year by year, eking out, you know, barely sustainable living, but added together, if we take it in the aggregate, those changes would make a big dent um, in, you know, carbon emissions. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned uh, cover crops. Uh, As you say, um, they increase the amount of carbon stored in the soil, improve soil quality, fertility, expand photosynthesis. In fact, I did see the statistic that we, uh, via cover crops, could cover a land mass the size of Texas times six. So yeah. massive Great. opportunity in conservation agriculture. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask as a final uh, question, how can interested parties participate uh, in this so here's here's the opportunity to plug um, your organization and this initiative. Well, thank you for asking that question. I think um, one of the most important things is just we is understanding the role that nature plays and and really thinking about it for a moment um, as really a technological system unto itself. You know, I hear a lot of conversations where people are asking, how can we, we know that we have to stop burning fossil fuels and putting it out there, but we know we also have to pull it down at the same time if we're going to avoid the worst of climate change impacts. And not enough people understand the vital role that our forests, our wetlands, 
our coastal ecosystems, the way we produce our food is playing a role in actually doing just that for us right now. And with massive rates of deforestation, <clears throat> I think as consumers, as health advocates, as citizens, um, we need to understand that nature is working in our favor, but we need to make sure to lean in on the policies, the consumer habits, and the advocacy and awareness that will support more investment in protecting and regenerating um, these systems so they can do the work they have done. And to your point um, with the research that we're just learning about in terms of the Ice Age, it's hopeful, right, that mm -hmm. this can play such a big role if we can focus on regeneration. And I would just say at the last that it also has to be an equitable regeneration, right? There's a big tension between economic development and cashing in on natural resources in the short run to fuel increased GDP, increased, um, you know, standard of living. But we have to realize that, you know, these resources do have a value. We have to figure out how to monetize them in a way that is equitable and just and doesn't forget that, you know, putting a price tag on nature is important on the one hand, but it also has inherent benefits and that can't get lost in our effort to figure out how to build a market that will incentivize the right thing. Yes, sustainability is the key. I did look at your allies listed, and I would hope, and maybe this uh, podcast in some small way can contribute to uh, your allies growing to include uh, whom should be natural partners, the healthcare sector or industry, because again, as before we started, I noted health and nature are two sides of the same coin. So with that, uh, Jennifer, I appreciate uh, your being generous with your time. Obviously, with this launch, I'm sure you're more than busy. Um, so I wish you uh, every success, and thank you for this brief overview. And maybe I'll check in down the road and see how you've evolved the program. But thank you again. Thank you, David, and thanks to your audience. And I hope that everybody takes a moment to learn um, just a little bit more so that you can raise your voice about the importance and the linkage between nature and our health every day. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.